Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the day, for waking us and keeping us, for the messages we've heard. I pray that you would be with us now, that your spirit would guide and direct my words, that they be your words and not mine, that as we contemplate the parables that you've put forth and what those parables mean and how they apply to us today, that you would teach us, that we would have an open mind, a mind that you could speak to us, that we might hear your voice, that we would walk with you, that we not just be hearers of these things, but that we would be doers. It's easy to have a lot of knowledge, to learn a lot of things, but if we don't put them into action, then it is for naught. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to not just be hearers, but doers. God, and direct us according to your will and purposes, I pray in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray. Amen. So this is kind of a very common quote. You may hear it if you ever hear people speak on education. It's from the book Education. It's on page 13 in the first paragraph. It says, Our idea of education take too narrow and too low a range. There is need of a broader scope, a higher aim. True education means more than the pursuit of a certain course of study. It means more than the preparation of, for the life that now is. It has to do with the whole being, with the whole period of existence possible to man. It is the harmonious development of the physical, the mental, and the spiritual powers. It prepares the student for the joy of service in this world and for the higher joy of wider service in the world to come. So, when we talk about education, we're not talking about something that's to help you get a career. Not that it wouldn't help you get a career. But education is about personal development. It's about preparing us to be fit, not just for the service here, for the service here, but not just for the service here. It's to prepare us for our heavenly kingdom, to do service there, which is an amazing thought that we will be doing service in heaven. And this is kind of our preparatory work. So that's a really, to me, a wonderful thought. And honestly, I think that it's a parable in and of itself. If we were to pause and think about what education is doing, the purpose of education, it's a parable. It's a parable about the heavenly work. We're learning and we're growing to come into that place to learn what heaven is about so that we're prepared to do the work that heaven is going to be about. Education, page 30, says this. In the highest sense, the work of education and the work of redemption are one. Now that's a profound thought. When we go to school college, undergraduate, elementary, do we realize that we're working redemption out? I don't think we think about that too often and how profound education is. It's shaping and molding our minds, how we think, how we view the world, how we reason. Do we see Christ in it or is it a means to an end? It is a means to an end, but what end? So, I took this quote. There's a little book by E.A. Sutherland, Studies in Christian Education. And this quote, she takes two Ellen White quotes. And what I want to do is read these, how he framed it, and then I want to look at these two quotes for a few minutes and, and kind of see what the context of these two quotes were and how he framed them. And it was, it was profound to me what it said. It said, now, as never before, we need to understand the true science of education. If we fail to understand this, we shall never have a place in the kingdom of God. That was a powerful thought. And that's from Christian Educator, August 1, 1897. Then he goes on to tie it to this quote from 6T, page 131. It says, the science of true education is the truth and the third angel's message is truth do we have we have we fully digested have we fully taken in what it is we're doing when we go and get an education when we send our children to get an education when we ourselves are raising our children with education we're educating them to what ends for what purposes how are we doing it Bob Jorgensen used to have a class, and he says, are we doing, how do you say it, um, public school at home when we do homeschooling? 
Are we just taking the world's models and adopting them to what we're doing? Or do we fully, do we really understand what it is we're about, what we're doing when we do education? And again, I'm going to bring this back. I think this process of education is the parable. It's a living parable because it's the life lived, what we live in front of our children, in front of our friends' children, our nephews, our nieces, our neighbors. The life we live is education to them. Do we follow the counsel? Do we believe the counsel enough that we actually apply it in our lives and not just intellectually know it? So, this is going to be the Christian Educator, pages 8 and 9. So we're going to go back and look at what Sutherland quoted from. And where it's read, that's where he quoted. So that you can kind of follow what, what the quote is talking about and where it's placed in the quote. Where it's underlined, that's me highlighting things. <laughs> in this age, as never before, when the two great forces of the principles of heaven and the principles of hell have met, and decided conflict, our youth need instruction in Bible principles. Now, let me ask you a question. How old is a youth? 12 to 30 is a youth? In contrast to Enoch, what's a youth? <laughs> to Enoch. I think we all are. That's the point of my question. So, when this talks about, oftentimes we frame it, and I think that I asked the question because I want you to reframe what's being said. We often put this in the light of young children or teenagers, college age, but I think we really need to be taking this to heart of what this is going to do for me and you. Because where is it going to start? If we're going to train them, where do we need to start? In our own hearts. So... Keep that focus. Our, you, our youth, let me see here, yeah, our youth need instruction in Bible principles. Like the branches of the true vine, the Word of God presents unity in, di in diversity. There is in it a perfect, superhuman, mysterious unity. It conta contains divine wisdom, and that is the foundation of all, the tr all true education. But this book has been treated indifferently. How do we treat this book indifferently? We cannot read it. That would be to treat it, you know, it's like a, a doorstop or, you know, it's a good luck charm on our bookshelf or something of that nature. We don't think about it. Our approach to it. Our approach, how we approach it. I think this can be a fundamental problem. If we have a Greek education, and you know, whatever that means, we can all decide for ourselves to some extent what that means, but if we have been taught how to think from a worldly standpoint, do you think when we come to the scriptures all of a sudden we have a heavenly perspective? It seems highly unlikely. And so we may need to reapproach how we read scripture even, because I think all of us have been subjected to this in all kinds of different ways, to the extent that maybe we even just got that kind of education and that's how we think. Now, as never before, we need to understand the true science of education. If we fail to understand this, we shall never have a place in the kingdom of God. This is, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he, thou hast sent. If this is the price of heaven, shall not our education be conducted on these lines? Christ must be everything to us. Do we fully digest these things? Now listen to this top line here, underlined and bold, right? This is the great subject that underlies all true sanctifi sanctified education. So we're going to look at parables, and a lot of the parables are obviously Christ parables. But you know, the parables go far more than that. When Isaiah is talking to us, and he's telling us about a virgin birth, he's talking in parables. Do we understand what he's saying? Do we understand that what he's talking about? How are we going to understand a parable? 
What's Isaiah actually saying to the nation of Israel? What's he talking about? Because if we, if we don't have some scope of what he's talking about, it's hard to make it applicable or apply to us, right? And so these are parables because what is he doing? He's talking more for whose day? He's talking more for our day than he was for them, we're told, right? And so this is how we have true, this is how we come into true knowledge and understanding, and this leads to true sanctification. When this is made the theme of our conversation, no idle common talk will fall from our lips. Jesting and joking are heard because the soul temple is unsanctified and unholy. God, the everlasting Father, gave His only begotten Son to the world, that all who come to Him might have everlasting life. And in this gift, He opened to us a channel of the richest and most inexhaustible treasures. This sacred theme should be the food of our minds. What did Jeremiah do? What did Ezekiel do? What did John do? What did they all have in common? Can anybody tell me what I'm asking for after reading that? They all ate something. What'd they eat? They ate a little book, a scroll, a roll. Now, this is, to me, a profound idea. It's a profound thought. What are we going to talk about here? With this bread of life, we should satisfy our soul hunger. If we do this, we cannot hunger for the worldly excitement or grandeur. Our religious experience is of exactly the same quality as the food we give our minds. And I mean, we just heard a sermon last night. How much are we looking at our phones? How much are we inundated by the world's food, the world's knowledge and education that we take for granted? We don't even realize what's entering into our minds. Because if we're going to understand the parables... If we're going to be able to go into the garden and make application of the things that we're taking in, the things that we're doing with our hands, how we understand the science. When you saw, I don't know if anybody was here for Alan's lectures talking about soil science and what he was talking about with soil science. These are not simple things and they're all a picture. Every single one of those details is a picture of Christ and the plan of salvation. And so how do we ingest those things? Do we ingest them from a worldly point of view? Or is that food going to be food that nourishes for a kingly, a world, a world beyond this world? All right. Go on. And this is still from the Christian educator. The truths contained in the scriptures are grand, elevating, uplifting, ennobling. If the lost image of God is restored in this world... These truths must be cherished. Do you know what it means to cherish something? I mean, you ever had something and you just can't wait to get home because you want to do it, you want to play with it, you want to use your new tool, you want to you cherish it, you, you don't just beat it up, you take care of it, you make time, you cut time, it's a priority. When other things come about, you're like, yeah, that's great, but I want to do this because you cherish it, you hold it dear and close, it's important. Right? Is this how we do our time with our Savior? If the lost image of God is to be restored in the world, these truths must be cherished. They are grace with they are graced with such simplicity that they could not possibly have originated in any human mind. A sower from a higher world went forth to sow the world with seeds of truth. This is what's before us. Foolishness and truth. And we make a decision, moment by moment, day by day. What do we want? What are we going to digest? What's going to be food for our minds? Only this higher phase of education is able to prepare students for the higher school, where Christ and God will be the teacher and where throughout eternity we shall learn how best to magnify and glorify God's name. Amen. Men who are not burdened to learn Greek and Latin may yet possess a most earnest zeal to prepare in this life to receive life eternal 
and, turn, and enter the higher school, taking with them the results of their studies in this world. When they reach the heavenly school, their education will have advanced just in proportion as in this world they strove to obtain a knowledge of God and the world's Redeemer. Think about that. What you take time to do here, to put your mind, to feed your mind upon, has a direct correlation to what you will do in heaven, what you will learn in heaven, your capacities to learn in heaven to a certain extent. To a large extent, maybe. What blessings we have before us. She said, we may be sending forward our investment in time. We read earlier about indifference. And in that indifference, we don't realize what we're losing. We're losing this grand opportunity. Oh, let's see here. When they reach the heavenly school, their education will have advanced just in proportion as in this world they strove to obtain a knowledge of God and the world's Redeemer. And just in proportion to the advancement they have made in seeking God and His righteousness, will they be rewarded in the future immortal life. So, this is the last bit of that quote. It says, The scheme of redemption is not a common study. Had it been so, many souls would not have been disloyal to God. In types and shadows, parables, important truths and mysteries that needed an interpreter were veiled. The shadow pointed to the substance, and when Jesus came to our world, it was to let spiritual light shine forth. Amen. So, we're going to look at 6T, the second part of the quote that we read from Sutherland. And this one's just a short little clip. I didn't feel like we needed as much context. The other one had a lot to it. I felt like that added to what he was trying to infer in that statement that he made. 6T says this, page 131.1. We know that there are many schools which afford opportunity for education in the sciences, but we desire something more than this. The science of true education is the truth, which is to be so deeply impressed on the soul that it cannot be obliterated by the error that everywhere abounds. The third angel's message is truth and light and power, and to present it so that right impressions will be made upon the hearts should be the work of our schools as well as of our churches. So, do we recognize that the education process is the third angel's message in verity? In truth. You know that when they say in verity, verity means truth, right? The third angel's message is righteousness by faith. In verity. Does everyone know that quote? In truth. The science of true education is the third angel's message in verity. It is righteousness by faith in verity. Do you see that? That's profound. So Sutherland, after he said that statement, he framed it in a certain way in his own words. So this is E.A. Sutherland here. It is taken for granted that all Seventh-day Adventists believe that Christian education and the third angel's message are the same truth. Did you take that for granted? I mean, can you imagine? He just said that every Seventh-day Adventist takes this for granted. It's just a given. This is, everyone knows this, right? And if you can sit here and say, well, I didn't really know that, or it doesn't seem like we know that, something's changed. Something has changed. I'm going to read that again. It is taken for granted that all Seventh-day Adventists believe that Christian education and the third angel's message are the same truth. The two are as inseparable as are a tree's roots and its trunk and branches. Think about that. All right. So we're getting pre prepared, right? Parables. Living parables. Meeting, the, meeting our master in the garden. 
to walk with him and learn from him. We have the Christian educator, 11 and 12. So here we are, Christian educator, pages 11 and 12. Had the system of education generations back been conducted upon altogether a different plan, the youth of this generation would not be so depraved and worthless. Now she's talking to people that aren't alive anymore. And I'm just saying, what do you think your chances were by the time you arrived on this planet? If it was in that situation then, what do you think our chances were? Pretty slim. Pretty slim. Yeah. The messengers and teachers of the schools should have been those who understood physiology and who had... Oh, I'm sorry. The managers and teachers of the schools should have been those who understood physiology and who had an interest not only, in educa- in, not only to educate the youth in the sciences, but to teach them how to preserve health in order to use their knowledge to the best account after they had obtained it. So hold on. We were supposed to learn what? Physiology. What is physiology? How your body works. What do we need to know about our, the body? We just do whatever we want, don't we? We wear what we want. We sleep what we want. We eat what we want. No. No, this is not. This is not reasonable. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. But what was the problem? Generations back, what was the problem? Depravity. Depravity is worthless. It will never solve your problems. It will never elevate you to a higher understanding of God and who God is and what He has in store for us. He has a great plan for us. He has amazing things He wants to give you. So amazing that in the, in, despite of all the suffering that life might throw at you and upon you, you'll have joy. You will count it all joy. All right. Life Sketches 355. The hope of advancing the cause of God in this country is in creating a new moral taste and love of work which will transform mind and character. How many people here love to go on vacation? Oh, a lot, fair, fair amount. Love to go on vacation. There's nothing wrong with, with vacation. So, I asked the question about vacation because vacation is supposed to be a recreation for us, right? But recreation is recreation. Right. So when we take a vacation, are we trying to get away from work? Because work is a blessing, right? Yeah. Work is a blessing, but sometimes you need to have your batteries recharged. Because work is work. You get tired. You know, you need change in life. You want a little variances. So it's a point of view, right? How do we view these things? How are we thinking about work? How have we been training our children that work is a drudgery? Because when they go in the garden, is it, is it just some torture? Or is it a blessing? Do they see the blessing? You know how they'll know if it's a blessing? Well, the way you see it will be the first thing. And the second thing will be, is when you went out there with them, did you make it drudgery for them? Or did you make it joy for them? Because how we train the child has everything to do with how they feel about things. And if we show them the joys and wonders and the parables and how Christ has given us this work that we might learn of Him, that we might glorify Him, and we instill that in their hearts, what are they going to do? What are they going to think? How are they going to feel about it? Genesis 3, 17 and 19. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. We, learned, we heard that last night if you were here, right? In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. 
And we know the rest, thorn and thistle and so on and so forth. And so why do we get the thorn and thistle? Why is the garden so difficult? It's a parable. What's the parable? Okay, so we, we're, we're down to the, well, we teach our little children. We're hoeing out the sins in our lives. Heard this, right? It's true. It's so true. But if we stop here, if this becomes the extent of our parable understanding, and we're still at 47 years old, 30 years old, 20 years, if we're 15 years old and we're still hoeing out the sins in our lives and we haven't understood the more complexities, what's the problem? I'll put forth that our education has not been what it ought to have been. We've been sidetracked. Somebody has been deceiving us. My encouragement to you is it's never too late. God wants to come today and open our minds up. And He wants to pour in the Holy Spirit to overflowing. Because why? Because when we go there, it's an act of service. We serve God. We serve the microbiome, the, the soil microbiome. We serve our community. Why? How? What do you mean? Because we're there as a tool in the Lord's hand, and He has a purpose. And He didn't pick an arbitrary work. He put Adam in the garden. He could have put him anywhere, but where did He put him? In the garden. You know, God did all these things. He spoke them into existence. He did wonderful works. You know, He planted a garden eastward in Eden with His own hands. He's a living parable. Amen? Amen. The same power that... Well, let me... I can't see. <laughs> Education 99.2. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide alike the star and the atom control human life. The laws that govern the heart's actions regulating the flow of the current of life to the body are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has the ju jurisdiction. jurisdiction of the soul from him all life proceeds only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action for all the objects of his creation the condition is the same a life sustained by receiving the life of god a life exercised in harmony with the Creator's will. To transgress His law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself outside of harmony with the universe, to introduce discord, anarchy, ruin. Whether we know it or not, reality always works itself out. He will wink at our ignorance, but we will still suffer under the weight of that ignorance. To him, we're going to keep going here, to him who learned thus to interpret its teachings, all nature becomes illuminated. The world is a lesson book, life a school. The question may be asked, when we became farmers, a lot of people I know when they became farmers, I have a good friend, and he's not an Adventist, he's, I, don't even, I don't think he believes in God. He became a farmer. He sits next to me at my farmer's market. And I was talking to him, and his whole family told him he needs to quit doing this. He needs to quit farming. Get a real job. This is ridiculous. This isn't real work. People don't do that. Yeah. I said, I said listen, man. This work is noble work. We are here to support you. Keep your hand to the plow. Don't look back. And they tell you that, just smile and show them something different. This is this question. The question may be asked, how can he get wisdom that holdeth the plow and driveth the oxen by seeking her as silver and searching for her as for hid treasure? For his God doth instruct him to, discern, to discretion and doth teach him. And this young man has no idea what's going on out there in the garden. But you know, unequivocally, without question, he is drawn to the garden because God is drawing him. 
So what's wrong with us? 1% of the population is doing agriculture and they're not all Adventist. And even if it was, it would still be a sad set of state of affairs. Not that we all need to be farmers, but we should all be growing stuff because this is the schoolhouse. This is the, we're gonna get to it, but what do we say? This is the what? A, B, and C of true education. Now, you know A, B, and C is not the end of the alphabet. It's the beginning, it's the foundation, but it is not true education. It is the foundation of true education. So anyway, we go on. He who taught Adam and Eve how to tend the garden would instruct men today. There is wisdom for him who holds the plow and plants and sows the seed. The earth has its concealed treasures. Now, what do we think a concealed treasure is? I know. We're plowing and we find a box of gold. So then we take all that we have and we're going to sell it all so we can buy that field, right? Have you ever heard that? Then it must be true. Right? It's parable. But it is true. If you found a box of gold in the field, you would do that. How much more is our Heavenly Father going to give us? A box of gold is staying here on this earth. But what you will find when you go plow up that ground is far exceeds, far, far exceeds a box of gold. Even the gold of Ophir. It's going to rust, canker, and melt away. But you and I have the opportunity to obtain something that will last for eternity. Wow. Who wants to go plow the field? I'm going to move on here. I'm going to read this highlighted portion. Many farmers have failed to secure adequate returns from their lands because they have un undertaken the work as though it was a degrading employment. They do not see that there is a blessing in it for themselves and their families. All they can discern is the brand of servitude. How often do we feel that? I, know, I mean, I have a farm. If you have a garden, you may not feel it as much, but there's certain days when I'm like, it's really hot today. <laughs> I mean, I've gone through three, four, five shirts in a day just sweating. It's brutal. It's rough. And sometimes I'm thinking, man, this is, this is rough. <laughs> what am I missing? What's wrong with my thinking? We don't understand the parable. We don't, we're not making the application of the object lesson that we're experiencing. I'm not saying I want to go out there and sweat, but if I'm out there sweating, God has ordained every action. Nothing touches me that is not for my best interest. And so what am I supposed to learn? What do I take home? If I fell at planting onions, what should I do, Michelle? Why? She said, if I don't plant the onions, I won't know if they work or not. You know what I told her? We failed at onions for years. You probably heard the story if you've ever heard me speak before. I've said it a couple times. I said, if I don't plant them, I've already failed. If I plant them, I got a shot. By God's grace. What's the problem? The problem is, is I'm being taught how to grow onions. Because I don't know how to grow onions, obviously. And who's going to get the glory? Why? Because clearly I don't know how to grow onions. So when they work, what can I say? Look at what I did. Nope. Man, God is gracious. Praise the Lord. And it doesn't mean God's going to do super magical, you know, He doesn't work that way. 
I might go over to Brother Swain's house and Brother Swain would be like, hey, Larry, look at this. And I'll go, oh, I need to get that book. And I read that book and I go, oh, God showed me how to grow onions. And I do it, I implement it. And if it's truth, it may not work right away. But if it's truth, it'll work. So, I'll read the underlying portion there. Farmers need far more intelligence in their work. In most cases, it is, it is their own fault if they do not see the land yield its harvest. They should be constantly learning how to secure a variety of treasures from the earth. Whose fault was it the onions didn't work? It was my fault. Why is it my fault? I came to this piece of ground. It was ruined by the people before me. I planted it, and it didn't work. I'm learning something, but I might, it might not have been that I needed to learn how to fix the ground to make the onions work. I might be humble. I might need it. All my neighbors is walking by watching me fail. I might need to know when I succeed that he didn't succeed. Something has happened on that farm no man can do because they're all watching us, you know. They're all watching us. Had a little girl walking by for a year watching me. I made $4,000 the first year we farmed. I planted about $80,000 worth of produce and we made $4,000. That's how bad it failed. I probably said that, sorry. So those are general terms. I vary that number somewhat from time to time. It's just a you kind of. You 4000 on top of the 80? No, I planted $80,000 worth of produce and I got $4,000 out of it. I plant a farm. <laughs> I don't plant the garden. I plant a farm. It literally turned purple and didn't grow another leaf. That's the kind of land I came to. I came from a place where the first year we made $80,000, $83,000, and a hundred and some thousand dollars after that. And then I went to the Black Hills Health and Education Center, and we did really well there, more than they've made in the history, and all so on, and you go on. And, and we came to our farm, and that's what happened. Whoa. I needed to learn something, didn't I? I was a little too self-confident and thought I knew how to farm. And the Lord said, you don't know anything, son. Let me teach you something. And I said, Father, here I am. Many times I've cried in a furrow. Lord, what in the world is going on? How do I feed my family? Why has my wife got to go to work while I stand here and ruin this land? Or well, I don't know what is happening. God is good. God is good. It is 1017, so I'm going to jump through some of these. <laughs> and get to this one. Where do you start? We came to a piece of ground and it was grass. We call that fallow. It had been worked and nothing's happened to it. They mowed it, cut it, took the hay off. That's about all they did to it. Hosea 10, 12. Sow to yourself in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For, it's, for it is time to seek the Lord. Till he comes and rains righteousness upon you. What, what does that mean? We're going to break up our fallow ground. And we're going to reap mercy? We're going to reap in mercy when we break up our... Does that make any sense? When you break up fallow ground, you're supposed to plant seeds and get broccoli, right? Lettuce. <laughs> no till. <laughs> it's a parable. So where do we start in agriculture? We start with fallow ground, right? You think that's important? Should we recognize something in this? Review and Herald, March 12, 1889, paragraph 5. It is too late in the day for a superficial work. It is time to arise and shine, for the glory of God has risen upon you. It is too late to play into the hands of the enemy. The plowshare must go deep. The fallow ground must be broken up. We need to have our hearts broken. We need to feel how offensive is sin before God. We are to keep the heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Do we understand what sin is? The answer has got to be no, right? Because if we understood what it was, we would never jump in the mire, would we? 
I mean, if you were on a farm and there was pig slop and they're wallowing in the mire, you don't go, hey, let's everybody go jump in. It's like going swimming. No, we would never get in that filth. It's disgusting. It's disease ridden. It's, it's death. But yet, we make all kinds of excuses about sin, don't we? We make all kinds of reasons why, well, I just slipped. It didn't mean to. As if we don't have a mind. As if we don't have a will. We need to break up the fallow ground of the heart because we have hard hearts. Our hearts need to be broken. We need to fall at the foot of the cross in contrition. We do not understand what we're doing to our Savior. Break up the fallow ground. MR 11, page 177.4. As they cultivate the soil, students are to learn spiritual lessons. The plow must break up the fallow ground. It must lie under the rays of the sun and purify and purifying air. Then the seed is to be, I'm sorry, then the seed is to all appearances dead. I'm sorry, let me reread that. Then the seed to all appearances is dead is to be dropped into the prepared soil. Trees are to be planted, seeds for vegetables sown. And after man has acted his part, God, God's miracle work, God's miracle working power gives life and vitality to the things placed in the soil. In this agricultural process, there are lessons to be learned. Man is not to do slothful work. He is to act the part appointed him by God. His industry is essential if he would have a harvest. We have our part to play. We have a free will. We choose. And when we choose, what will God do? He will change the heart. You cannot change the heart. Christ object, or steps to Christ 46, I believe, 47. 47 tells us we cannot change the heart. But we can put our will on his side. Pardon me? I think we're gonna. I don't know if I... I did it on that slide, but I'll, I have it one slide somewhere. <laughs> so, we have fallow ground. We're going to plow that fallow ground. And what's it say up there? The plow and the altar. This, this struck me so... What do you see there? You see an ox, a plow, and an altar. This is what Ellen White had to say about it. I have seen a device representing a bullock standing between the plow and an altar with the inscription, ready for either. Amen? Amen. Willing to swelter. How many times did I have to change my shirts? Three, four times. Swelter. Willing to swelter in in the weary furrow or to bleed on the altar of sacrifice. This is the position the children of God should ever be in, willing to go where duty calls, to deny self, and to sacrifice for the cause of truth. Amen? The blessing is in the work. Amen? Whatever the call, are we prepared? Have we been so consecrated to God? Have we had seen so much of the living parable that we're so settled, called to death, we lie on the altar. Called to toil in the furrow. We count it all blessing. The plow. Romans 13.10 Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What has that got to do with the plow? I don't know. Let's see. How many are dis- I mean, let me reread this. How many are deficit in love? Oh that love might eradicate I'm sorry. Eradicate, yes, eradicate from the heart, emulate emulation and strife, and roots man, let me reread that. How many are deficient in love? Oh that love might eradicate from the heart hatred, emulation, and strife 
and the root of bitterness, whereby many are defiled. Never can the love of Jesus be received and shed abroad in the heart until envious feelings, hatred, jealousy, and evil surmising are put away. That stuff needs to be cut out and turned over. Those roots need to die. We'll read the highlighted portion that's underlined. The plowshare of truth must plow deep furrows in our proud hearts and tear up the sod of our unsanctified natures that the spirit of love of that the spirit and love of Jesus may be planted in our hearts. When we go out there and we do this work, we should be seeing what God wants to do in us. Now, this is where I was going to define the, the field and the plow. But really, we've got about four minutes, and I want to get to an object lesson. So I'm going to, I'll just say this. You asked what the plow was? I believe it's heart work. And I think it's got all kinds of applications depending on where you're coming from, what your context is, and what story you're applying it to. But I think it's heart work. And I think if you look at this text, I'll give you the text. It's Sons and Daughters of God, page 49. I really hate to skip it because it's about pure love and what that all does for us. But the field is the heart. But we also know the field is the church because Christ told us that. We also know that Ellen White tells us it's the church in the world. I was thinking of the plow as the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. I think you're right. But it all has its different applications. So these aren't one parable, right? What are we learning? Parables can be multifaceted. It depends. I say this to my wife. She says, what do you do this? What's my answer? It depends. It depends. Context. Soil structure. This is what I want to get to. How many people here have seen this, this before? Does anybody know what that is? You know what it is? You've seen it? This is, this is an ideal soil structure. Soil structure changes all the time. It's not a set standard. It's not a set way. But this is soil. This is how soil basically works. And so I want to read Genesis 2-7. I'm sorry. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed in him the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Now, when you start looking at soil structure, when you start farming, you start thinking about soil structure because you need to have the breath of life in the soil. If you don't have the breath of life in the soil, it's all bound up, locked up. You know, the, the soil takes a breath every 24 hours. It has a, a cycle where it, it takes a breath. And it'll pull in all that nitrogen. It'll push out all that carbon dioxide. And the plant needs the carbon dioxide. And it photosynthesizes and gives us oxygen and so on and so forth. But if that soil isn't structured correctly, it won't be able to accomplish that task. Right? It's going to bring in nitrogen, all these things that the, the xenomycin and all that biology down there is going to fix nitrogen. It's going to do its work, right? So this is kind of what it looks like. And what you have there, you can see up there, it's 50% mineral, 22% water, 20, 22.5% water, 22.5% air, and 5% organic matter. And again, that varies and changes slightly, in, or a lot sometimes. But this would be a good structure that was basically functioning correctly. So... What is mineral matrix? 50% of this soil structure is mineral. That's your mineral matrix. That's the rocks in your soil. That's the minerals that aren't water soluble. They're not in solution. They're not available to the plants, right? It's just the, the, the parent material in the soil. That's the dust of the earth. Let me ask you something. Christ he breathed on his disciples. You remember that? What, did, what was that when he breathed on his disciples? What in the world what, what did he breathe on them? He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. You know that was the early rain, right? And what came out when he breathed upon them? The breath? What's in your breath? If you're going to clean your glasses, you... <sighs> Water. Now you think about that. What do we have? We have the breath of life, don't we? So you know that 5% there is organic matter. You know what organic matter is made up? If you come to my next class, I'll tell you. It's amazing. It's amazing. The organic, the or, it's, it's some powerful stuff. 
That's the glue. That's what holds the soil together. That's, your, that's what holds this stuff together so it doesn't blow away in the wind and so on and so forth. But I'm going to tell you, if you come to my next class, I'll explain how that works. Next class in this room? The next time I have this, the parable class, I have three parable classes. So number two, I'm going to go into photosynthesis. What's that? And so we're going to talk about photosynthesis a little bit. We'll talk about a few things, but one of the things will be photosynthesis, and I'll explain to you why I think that's the Holy Spirit. But I'll just tell you, I'll give you a little hint. It's primarily made up of oil. And so, what do you see there? Us. Us, that's us. Do you see that? Yeah. God took the dust of the earth, and he breathed in him the breath of life. And everybody's got a conscience. Even if it's a seared conscience, born in sin, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Oh, Father, we thank you for your blessings, how you love us. You haven't left us here and abandoned us to ourselves. You have given us so much evidence, so much teaching of who you are and your love towards us. Lord, as we look at these things, as we dig into the sciences, we recognize that we don't want the foolishness of this world. We want to understand true science, the science of salvation, the science that you have given us that draws us to you, that shows us this beautiful picture of what you'd have us to experience on this earth, that you want to take us back to that state before Adam chose to partake of sin, a knowledge of sin, that you want to give us a right spirit, that you want us to stand in the fullness Though we may stand in this fallen flesh, this sinful flesh, Lord, we know that we can look to our Redeemer and know that He has stood in this sinful flesh and that He has overcome for us and that we can be just like Him by beholding Him, Lord. And as we come to this second book, all we can do is but see You. And so we thank You for it, that You would change us as we behold You. We thank You in Jesus' name. For His sake we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.